What's up, family? Welcome back to the Stop Sinking Show, where we go from struggle to flow. This is the documentary of a flawed person bearing his soul for some reference. Something I'm guilty of, first and foremost, is falling in love with ideas. For me, once I tease out something and test something on for size and it fits, I tend to cherish it and maybe grasp it too much to what it is that I have now come to understand. I want to hold on to it. And what I will credit myself with, however, is that my love for a new road, a new journey, and the promised transformational shift in that is greater than any love I may have nurtured for somewhere I may have already arrived. And I suppose most of us go through the planet doing this exact same thing with varying degrees of rigidity, depending on the person that you are and varying degrees of love towards what we know and how willing we are to abandon what we know to pick up a new upgraded belief. I'm sure everyone's different in this regard, but I think most of us kind of do the same things. Now, the only problem lies within this way of operating is that your filter that determines validity in itself of what should alter your beliefs is state dependent. The filter itself is state dependent. And if valid information reaches you at a time when you are not receptive or is received in a way that does not match your temperamental liking, then it gets dismissed regardless of how valid it was. And maybe you can make the argument that that's the point of your filter and feel good about that fact as it dismisses what is clearly not for you and you trust it that much, which then really would get me to further the point of this problem of reliance on this filter. Who's to say you know yourself at all or sufficiently enough to set this filter? And even if you have sage-like self-awareness, can you confidently say that your filter is serving a future version of you in which that dismissed valid information may have provided and proved to be valuable and the ignoring of which now will be costly. The point is we tend to fall in love with our ideas and then elevate them above all else like they are the most right. Some of the effects of isolation accelerated by the pandemic was what something that started in the West but was spreading to be the state of the world in general now, has been this overall generational shift towards a self-focused individualist, almost in a way of preservation maybe, at least in what was accelerated, the spirit by which we saw it 
during the pandemic in a way of self-preservation maybe, and maybe in a way to make the most of our temporary existence on our own terms was this shift towards a self-focused individualist way of being. And I can talk about for hours about the pros and cons and the implications of a shift from a collectivist culture, which I've experienced to the individualist and its effects on society and culture as a whole. But I'll save that for another time if it ever makes sense. But even in my own short but increasingly longer life, I've experienced the full extended family under one roof growing up in India life, as well as not enough people in the house for it to even be worth it to cook dinner life. So needless to say, having seen and experienced both fully, I have a unique perspective on what's to be gained or lost on either side with being overly collectivist or individualist. And instead of making this podcast a three-hour-long dissertation about all those different facets, I'll focus on the aspect of relationships since it's top of mind and one of the main things that we talk about here. And I want to hyper-focus on one or two specific cons that comes along with the shift to an increasingly individualist culture or mentality and how it's keeping you from the depths in the relationships that you desire but you don't know how to get to because you don't realize how you are standing in the way of it and how these cons that already come along with the extremes of self-serving can be even more magnified when bred in isolation. And this, again, has an effect on your relationships, but also an effect on you just trying to reach for what you want in life. When even what you want in life starts to be bred in isolation under the guise of individualism, which is really masking self-preservation, which then starts to determine your goals and how you see the rest of your life, detached again from society in isolation, we start to have issues that I want to talk about today. Now, for clarity, for the purpose of this episode, because individualism might mean a lot of different things to different people, the connotation you will see me put on it that might offend you throughout this podcast is the flavor of individualism that comes with the strong I before you the I that matters before you. It's individualism with the spirit of self-serving, to be self-preserving, to minimize your self-disturbing. All you and little room for me. And one can make the case that when threatened, we all revert to defending ourselves, and maybe we should. Who else is going to do it? And even in our most integrated of relationships, we are ultimately still individuals who stand alone, to which I would agree and add that in healthy relationships, those two individuals standing alone put those two individuals aside and elevate the priority and importance of that relationship above their individual needs. It is a true communion of souls. But for our souls to elevate past our human individual selves to the state of 
soul communion still requires participation from our human selves. And the main problem to get there comes down to negotiation. True communion requires communication. Who would have thunk it? And before even getting to the point about having the skills to negotiate and communicate, the problem with a lot of us, especially as quickly as we have learned to cloak our feelings with the quick-to-put-on armor of this self-preserving individualism, is that we don't let ourselves be vulnerable enough to desire enough, to want enough, for the stakes to even be high enough for actual negotiation to occur. You see, even if one of the sides does not feel the need to negotiate because they elevate their self above the relationship, no effective communication or negotiation can even occur. If the juice isn't worth the squeeze, you won't bother. Or just have some plain sodas, no sugar. So all negotiation stops and it's back to comfortable isolation we go. And this plays out over and over again. And the older we get, the more isolated we get as we form into more and more of an individual. And the more isolated we become, the more we become intolerant to the ideas outside of those that don't pierce our good senses and only let in what confirms our biases. Almost being completely unaware that you are increasingly competent in your understanding, but only down one dark rabbit hole, which is disconnected from the broader functional society, leaving you vulnerable. And in the most practical of senses, you will stop getting what you want in life. That's how you know. And when you are not getting what you want, it would be a good time to stop and ask yourself if the assumed identity is actually getting in the way of what you want. And for that, you might need to soften that individual that you have learned yourself to be in order to become the one you want to move towards. The implications of this is played out in real life in our relationships. How often do you find it maddening to communicate to someone in your life who just doesn't seem to see eye to eye with you, like all words, fail in being able to connect with their way of seeing things? Or how often do you encounter people who will defend what they have said over possibly letting in new information that might change their perspective? Sure, the way you present things and your emotional bank account with them has a lot to do with their receptivity. But they themselves would benefit from pondering on what directly triggers a defense in the first place. But again, these are all plays of the ego, or in other words, the foundational pieces of your identity, all of which need governing forces, which, believe it or not, requires social interaction and social nudging. The very thing that increasingly triggers you as you get older, this outside social feedback that you try to avoid is the exact thing that you need. And I found some words from JP Enlightening 
on this topic sprinkled in here. He says, identity is a negotiation amongst everyone around you. To be functional, you have to actually allow your identity to be molded and shaped by the group, your peers. You have to allow for that to be functional. And what happens when you stop having reference peers or a shrinking amount of them as you gradually get older? By the isolation in your echo chamber that breeds your love for your hypocritical ideas? Is the problem that our access to these people disappears or do we ourselves with our preferences and our hardened likings become the block that then allows very few of these people to remain? And even if you have lots of followers and are super active on social media and consider yourself to be a socialite, how many people do you actually let mold you? How many actually are allowed in that head of yours for you to walk away thinking and reflecting on something that they have said. And again, we have a decreasing amount of this, not because they don't exist, but because it would take actual seeking out and efforting to keep up and continually be invited to play the game, to actually be in proximity of people who you admire enough to allow them to make an impression on you. I'm not saying everyone should be allowed to make an impression on you, but you need to push yourself to then be around the people that you then deem worthy enough to have an impression on you. And that takes work. And it's maybe not even that you have hardened up, but more that we need to be challenged on an increasing level. And the people around us might not be able to match that pace so we are either left more and more isolated or, again, we actually do the work of seeking out those that we can admire and learn from and be open to that we can continually look up to and look upwards to. But that doesn't mean we ever fall outside the social element. We just continue to seek and satisfy that on the way up the ladder toward what would be more appropriately a peer group to you at each stage to meet you at your level. And it's totally fine to outgrow the people around you. It's not fine at all to stop growing. And it's also troublesome to grow without reference points at every level. Meaning, again, there is a social aspect to your growth that cannot and should not be overlooked. We remain sane and in order through the data we receive back on our behavior from the people around us. Sanity is socially distributed. We outsource our sanity to the cues people around us give us. The social peer group Define the parameters of functionality and acceptability and what that actually means for us. And you may not think you're playing the game until you come across someone who is oblivious to the game completely and they violate all social rules and all codes of conduct and you feel so awkward and offended around them 
that you then realize how we're all collectively playing this acceptability and what is acceptable game that is socially defined. That you have to actively negotiate the roles and the intensity of your role on a daily or a moment-to-moment basis. Always gathering feedback and adjusting to be most playable and most invited back to play. There are very few games you can play alone. And even if you can, who's the victor? Or do you really feel like one? So you're always playing a game as an adult at the level that will further your development. And at every level, you are seeking someone whose game can refine yours while others are looking to you to play theirs better. And okay, I'm not saying you don't ever go on to transcend the game at any point, but that definitely isn't by first learning and abiding by the rules of the game. And that's what most people don't want to accept and start first in isolation, defining rules of a new game when they haven't even learned the rules of the game that are socially acceptable to play. And you cannot be considered fully creative and color outside the lines unless you have honed your skills within it. And again, leaving us as subjective judges of our competencies and our tendency to dismiss anything that we haven't learned the hard way ourselves leads most of us down the path of thinking that we have abided by the rules and learned them long enough to be ready to explore and rethink everything. And a lot of times that will just waste time rediscovering the hard way what was already known. But in the process, at least you will have earned a respect and perspective for the game and the risks of prematurely trying to play outside of it. And that's usually when you really begin. And there will be a point at which you disrupt the games being played with a better one that you come up with to play. But you will know when that time is when you have mastered all the games along the way and in those games you are getting the desired results when playing them. Meaning, up until then, you need cues to ensure you have a functional identity until you are predictably getting everything that you desire out of the tactics that you are applying, meaning your identity is functional and is delivering you what it is that you apply and it actually works and is received and you are invited back to play and you can keep playing that game and advance up the ladder until you have mastered those games you need cues to ensure that you have the functionality in your identity to be able to get to that point and when you act it out in the world and you get what you want and need that's when you know and if your identity doesn't do that You either retool your identity or you try to retool the world and bring the world in alignment with you. But again, retooling the world to you is not the place to start. The ideas you come up with in isolation 
need to be tested in the world for their functionality before they become ways of operating, even for you, let alone anybody else, to ensure that they actually get you what you want and need, and then you can pass that along as a way of being for others. Until then, you outsource cues to create a functional identity and how to behave to your broader social group. The opposite of isolation. Why? So you don't go crazy. So you don't do things that don't make sense to try to get to places that would never get you there in the way that you are trying. And on top of it, a functional identity then, when you have tools that make sense for the problems at hand, that functional identity regulates your emotions. It gives you a set of beliefs that make sense for the world around you from which to operate with that then do get you what you want in the world around you. And then when you step outside of that or you stop getting what you want, you know your identity is a mismatch to your environment. And then at that point, when it's a mismatch, all of your senses are heightened and looking for constant clues around you to stay alive. It's hard to be very creative in that state. If you don't have regulated emotions because your ideas bred in isolation do not stand the functionality requirements of reality, leaving you bereft of direction and clarity on how to operate, heightening all of your senses, then do you really believe you are in the position to consider your individualism as an elevated state of being? Then the obviously more functioning state of a social being in all senses of the word and convention. I mean, who do you really think you are to think that the rules don't apply to you? Are you really ready to suffer the consequences of that audacity? I would advise more humility to minimize regrets and to save you time. And even still, there obviously remains the question of which is the correct thing to do and for what and what matters. When to follow your inner guidance or when to take this advice. And if you haven't dismissed this entire conversation already, then you know the answer of this question is that it's up to you. In a sense, for me, it's a healthy play between knowing how to conform to the games already being played and being excellent at conforming as a student when needed. And also to be able to dream up, to structure, and then position the validity of new games for everyone to get on board with. Essentially knowing when to revolt and when to respect. And to ultimately be seen as someone who can do both. To exemplify to another witnessing that they can do the same. And that it isn't a slight to your ego. Or the eventual creation of your design isn't compromised when you 
bow to what already exists. From a different angle, this is not unlike me talking about the balance between humility and hubris. Add to that hubris the love for ideas bred in a room closed by the lack of humility, isolated with a lack of humility, the element of isolation and the individual you are presented with at that point is a, a hazard to themselves, increasingly intolerant to their broader society and a few steps away from total emotional dysregulation to possible destruction. So if there is one clear takeaway from this entire episode, it's to keep seeking a peer group or a mentor group while remaining humble to be the most optimal functioning human being best suited to bring about a favorable course of events in the unfolding of a future that you desire. I love you, family. Talk to you on the next show.